1: Now, if you have your Bibles, you might want to get them out now and turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. And I got thinking again how great our God is and how sovereign He is as He opens up this material even in timing. I've titled this message called Learning to Be Content. Now next week is going to be the last message in our series on Philippians, so I urge all of you to be back because we're going to kind of like tie the bow and present the gift on joy next week. And we're going to be titling that message One of God's Greatest Promises, and it's actually found right in the book of Philippians. So if you want to read a few verses ahead, you can be prepared to look learn what one of God's greatest promises would be to us. And I believe it'll be a great encouragement to you. So we're learning to be content. Now, this may date me for some of you but there was a popular song years ago when I was a young person and it was, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to sing and I'm certainly not going to dance it like the guy who wrote that song. But how many of you remember that song, I can't get no satisfaction? I wanted to know how many of you listen to rock music out there. Alright. Well, some 40 years later, I'm finding that the population still could sing that same song that they can't get any satisfaction either. They're unhappy, they're unfulfilled, they're unsatisfied and often Madison avenue is making sure that we feel that way so that they could peddle their goods in front of us thinking that when we have those things we'll be satisfied if you'll notice how tv and radio commentators they'll imply that contentment often comes sprayed on rolled on inhaled eaten, worn, lived in, gone to, listened to, or driven. I think if you take that a little bit further you can see they're going to try to appeal to every one of our senses. Kind of reminds me of a couple of passages in scripture where Satan likes to appeal to this consuming urge to have, to do, to be. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And they do a good job at that because as soon as we have these things we know that they become weights to us from fulfilling often what God has for us as the very, very best. Well, then I got going through passages of Scripture, and here's the Apostle Paul. If there was ever anyone who probably could have honestly then said he wasn't content, it would be Paul. Now, remember how I said these things such as, rolled on, he had no deodorant. How about inhaled? He smelled the musty, dungy prison that he was in, a dirty place that he was, eaten, Back in the Bible days, in order for you to be fed, your family or relatives or friends would have to somehow bring you food and they often would scrape it down to you and whatever fell in your little prison cell, that which you could eat. He could feel very unfulfilled and discontent with that, whatever was worn. He would only be given what he brought into the prison there, and that if anybody brought any garments, then they would have that. If not, they would be tattered and torn and lived in. Well, oh, my goodness, you know what that prison was like. It certainly wasn't air-conditioned nor heated. So he probably had a lot of bugs that were around, and only without saying this too graphically, little corners of that little cell that he had to go to the bathroom in. So you can imagine the smell and all the rats and the bugs and all that was going on. So for him, there'd be no contentment. And then, of course, we could talk about driven and all the rest. Yet, here is the man that was in a place that there was no reason for him to feel content, and yet he could say twice, twice in one passage, I learned to be content in whatever condition that I'm in. So if there is ever an expert that could teach us how to be content, there's no one better than the Apostle Paul for our life. So I get very excited about that. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Because this material is so rich in meaning and application, I'm going to be building this case, a biblical case for the proper view of contentment, one truth upon another truth, and I would like you to, as much as possible, lean into the entire message so you don't just take sound bites out of it. Because there is a balance, because being content, there's right ways to be content and a wrong way to be content. For one thing, contentment is not the following. It is not laziness, it's not apathy or complacency some people think if i just let go let god sit back don't worry about anything i am content and god says there's no place for laziness in fact he says if a man doesn't work he shouldn't even eat so there has to be an element of ambition in fact it even talks about those that are aspiring for spiritual leadership in a church that they should desire a good work so that's not contentment where you are that means you want to go on to do more and so there's a balance in all this and i would like you to follow along But now for those of you that would like to have a working definition that you can teach your kids on contentment, here's what we have for you. It works for me, it's biblical, and it's usable. Contentment is realizing God has given me everything that I need for my present joy realizing that God has given me everything that I need for my present joy. That means there's no good thing that God will withhold from those who walk uprightly with him. Here's another definition. It goes like this. Contentment is being satisfied with what God chooses to provide for me. Contentment is being satisfied with what God chooses to provide for me. And if you'll notice out of those two definitions of contentment, you're going to find that the core value in that is it centers on God and being satisfied with him and what he chooses to do in our life. So contentment is something that needs to be learned. I've titled this now four lessons to learn for real contentment. And before I go over those four lessons, I want to emphasize the concept of learning. And I'm going to bring you back to that because, again, like I mentioned earlier, two times in this passage, Paul is saying, I learned contentment in a couple of different areas. So when I pondered that word, I learned, and then he says, I learned it again, that must mean that there was a stage in Paul's life that he was not content, that he did not learn. In fact, we could say he was ignorant in that area. So he had to learn contentment. So then as I pondered on that concept, he had to learn contentment. How did he learn contentment? Well, there's probably two practical ways. One is through just the experiences of life. Most of you now are probably at a stage as you grow older in life that you've learned to be a little bit more content. You don't really have that, i got to go to the mall and buy and have and do and go and be more. You're learning to now power down as we experience more. And secondly, there are those of you, that have chosen to live and think according to scripture and over time you develop what is known as spiritual maturity. So now you have what we call a God-centered view or a Christian worldview of life instead of a secular worldview of life and putting those together, you now are growing in contentment. Now, since contentment and the whole concept of it is biblical, let me now bring another thought to you. And so moms and dads and parents, if you'll listen to this and maybe some grandparents for a moment. Since Paul said, I learned contentment, and contentment is a principle that I should have in my life, then I would think it's not too far of a stretch then to say, since children are given to me, and I need to rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in good principles so they can be good citizens as they grow up, to glorify the Lord, they need to learn things. Now, God will teach them things through the experiences of their own life as they develop. God will teach them through their own spiritual life development in their life. But the primary instructor, other than the Holy Spirit, will always be moms and dads and those significant uh, parental figures that are in their life. So, I could then come to this conclusion, that for my child to start young learning contentment, he needs to learn it from me as the parent or the older person in that person's life. So now, this message could take on even greater significance for you If you realize that, yes, my kid, he could frankly be beat up by the world over the next 60 years, and he'll learn contentment that way, and hopefully maybe my kid will grow up spiritually, and that way he'll learn contentment, or we could say, even with the things he'll learn in the world, and even as he grows spiritually, I want to be a part of that maturation process of contentment, and I want to help them. So if that's the case, then where do you begin teaching your kids? Now this is not rocket science, folks. you know where it is? It's when you and I buy into the Christian worldview of contentment ourselves. So the first thing we have to do is we have to own this truth for ourselves. We have to embrace this for us. And once we own this for ourselves, then we model contentment, the biblical contentment, between not being apathetic and not being so aggressive in our wanting more stuff that we have the perfect balance. We own that ourselves. And then we carefully partner with the Lord as His earthly mouthpiece to show the Word, to guide our children in a very loving manner of how to be content. Now, there are many ways I could take this message, but I'm going to try to single down four areas because I think four is enough for us to have ownership of through this passage for today. So let's go to number one, four lessons to learn for real contentment. Number one, learn to avoid comparisons. Again, using the Apostle Paul's principles given to us by God through him Here's what the passage says. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now, let me pause on that for a moment. Again, go back to the historical setting in which this was written. He was in cha- jail, in prison. So he's saying, I rejoiced in the Lord in prison. I don't believe he was rejoicing that he was in prison. I don't believe he was rejoicing in that he had a dungy cell. I believe he was rejoicing in the Lord in the dungy cell. So he's rejoicing in the Lord that gave him the ability to rejoice in the jail. Now, go a little bit further. See the word greatly there? Would you mark that in your Bible? It wasn't that he smiled or he had a momentary fleeting thought of, you know, I can be content. I'd also like to say he didn't bite the bullet on contentment. There are some people that say, all right, I've got to be content. I can't change this. I've got to accept it. I don't like it, but I will, so I'm just going to kind of um, uh, eke out my life. I'm going to survive in this condition. And God says, no, I don't want survivors. I want thrivers. And so that's why he said, I didn't just once in a while rejoice, I greatly rejoice. Then he says, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. We can unpack that a great deal, but we're not. But basically it's saying, as you've taken care of me once, but you've done it again and again, and you flourish. flourished. In other words, you just dumped a lot on me. Though you surely did care. Again, proving again their love for him. But you lacked opportunity. So there were times you wanted to do it, and you couldn't. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. Not that I speak in regard to a need, and here's what you want to mark. For I have learned in whatever state, whatever circumstance, I am to be content. I would like to tell you that discontentment seems to always come from comparing ourselves with other people, especially with those who have more than what we have, a greater job than we have. In other words, why do we have to have this job, this boss at this time? Why couldn't we have had a better boss? Why don't we have her boss or sh- his boss out there? I don't like my job, so we're discontent. There'll always be someone that'll have more money than you and me. There'll be pastors that'll be paid more than me, and I'm not saying you guys aren't paying me enough. You were very generous, and if you didn't pay me anything, that's okay. I'd still stay here and preach for you. Now, don't listen to that, finance team. But <laughs> what I am saying is that there are guys that will be paid more than me. There'll be guys that'll be paid more than you. There'll be others that have kids that are better behaved than your kids. Now you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, pastor's thinking about my kids. No, I'm not thinking about your kids. I'm thinking about your kids, if you know what I mean. Everybody's kids, my kids too. There's also going to be people at times that are going to have a bigger house than we have, a better car than we have, that won't be inflicted with as much affliction of health that we might have. There'll be other people that have more freedom to come and go than we have. There'll always be people in some measure, in some area that will be better than what we have. And that's why the Bible very clearly, even simply says that it's unwise for us to compare ourselves to other people. Now, we may follow the model of godliness in other people, but we don't have to follow the gain in other people. Because every man has to stand before God with what God has given to them and then use it for the glory back up to the Lord. And I know some people say, well, if God would trust you more, he'd give you more. I think that's dangerous teaching. I think we have to be careful with that and not take that further than God wants us to. Here's a verse. that's found in 2 Corinthians 4.18. You can listen to it. It says this, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's why we don't compare ourselves with other people or what they have. Because those things are things that are seen. At any moment, those things could be removed from them. In a heartbeat, they could be gone. And so what we do look at are the eternal. Now, what would be an eternal truth we could look at? There are many. But for this message, it's this. The eternal truth I want to look at that's unseen is the spirit of contentment. The ownership of my trust in a God who knows just what I need. He'll provide it or he'll help me get it. But it's all about God. So... I don't need to look around. I need to look up. I don't need to look at other people. I need to look at Jesus. And if we keep that in mind, we'll be all right. Let me give you three misconceptions about contentment that you might be able to help others have. Same kind of thought. Number one, I must have what others have to be happy. That's a misconception about contentment. I must have what others have to be happy. Fashion designers and trendsetters feed that attitude. In fact, they're getting rich off of it. And so it's all out there. So we must not have this misconception of thinking that we have to have what others have in order to be happy. Number two, I must be liked by everyone. See, contentment may not be just in things, it could be in popularity, that you'll be content when you're finally accepted by the right people, when you get voted in, when you get accepted in, when you can have things happen, you get promoted on your job, whatever might happen, you then think that as long as people like me, then I will be happy. Let me give you a phrase that you can take to the bank, and young people, if you could learn this now, this will save you a tremendous amount of heartache. Are you ready? Read my lips. You ready? Here's the phrase. It is impossible for everyone to like you. Do I hear an uh uh-huh on that? It is impossible for everybody. If you are in a position where you have to make a decision that will affect somebody, I guarantee there'll be some people that don't like it. If you're in a position at times that you have to make up an opinion on something, when you share your opinion and someone else has a different opinion than you, it's highly likely that they won't like you for your opinion. No matter what you do as a parent, even as a young person, because you live your life and you're going to make choices, whatever that choice is, somewhere along the line, people won't really like you. So if you're buying into, I will be content when I have the greatest popularity of people, it'll never happen because the moment it happens, it happens. You're going to see that. Most presidential people that are put into office, when they first get into office, they have high ratings. Most, not all, but most, by the time they're ending their office, it goes down because of the choices that they make. You look at most people that enter into a new job, a new career, they're a new hire, they get on the job. Everybody is a little skeptical, but they're glad they're here. Everybody's kind of doing all that huggy thing and glad to have you. High five and aloha and all that. But after a while, pretty soon, that person has to make decisions about times to come into the office, work that has to be done on a certain standard, issues like that you won't be liked. So if your core value is I must have these things, people to like me to be content, it won't happen. Now, does that mean that you go to work, you go into office, you go through life shooting low and throwing grenades at people? No, you don't do that. You do wanna make sure you have a relationship for the purpose of ministry in their life. But if you're doing it just to be liked, you won't be liked for very long. Even Jesus says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Number three, I must have more to make me happy. In other words, it's not just to have what others have. It's not just have more popularity, but I also have to have more things to make me happy. And there are a lot of people that have loaded up their houses with so much junk because they can get it on sale and they just might need this. I, you'll never know. It might happen. there will be a rainy day. I've got to have this. And they have such a hard time cleaning the clutter out, cleaning their lives out that they think by having that that gives them more contentment and all it does might be is hindering relationships with others because of all the things that are coming into that person's life Rockefeller one of the richest men in the world before he died he was asked this question how much money does it take to make someone happy and here was his answer it's so cool he said just a little more and you know what he's really saying by that is I have all this, but I need a little bit more. Now, when you have a little bit more, the question is, okay, what will make you happy? Just a little more. Okay, you have a little bit more. Now, just a little more. So in other words, you're never really satisfied until you have more stuff because you haven't bought into that concept, that biblical thinking, that Christian worldview of, and what's the word, everyone? Contentment. And that's what God wants. Look at this verse. I put it in your book there for you, your worship folder. It says this, Now, godliness with contentment, is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Now, you all know that. You know when they put clothes on a dead body as they put the casket, there's no pockets in them because you don't need it when you're dying, you know, and you're dead. But notice the next phrase. It says, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Would you circle the word food and clothing for a moment? Because some of you are saying, all right, what do I really need to be content? Okay, there has to be a threshold. Otherwise, I could be a homeless person maybe. And I'm not talking about those that had life's challenges go sour on them, it wasn't their fault. I'm talking about those that just choose to be that way because they just have no ambition and they're lazy. But going back to this, what, what's the threshold? Here it is. He says, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. So let me see if I can... Um, Amplify that a little bit because how much food, how much clothing, you know, we can argue all of that. In your margin, why don't you just put this phrase down because I think this will make it applicable, especially for the young people. Having the basic needs of life, that which I need to do life, I'm going to be content with that. Now, God can certainly build on top of that more, and He can do that. That's fine. We're going to learn about that in a moment. But what I need to be content with as long as I have the basic needs of life. Now, if you want to know what is a basic need of life, I'm going to appeal to some of you that are desiring to go on and grow on in the concept of contentment. Find a significant spiritual friend in your life, a mate, a parent, someone that you know that's spiritual, and you all have a wonderful conversation of what is a real basic need of life that you need to be content with. Then, if other things are removed, stolen, broken, damaged, lost, you can still go on with life because it's okay. I didn't need that for life. Therefore, I'm content because I got this, all the rest of the stuff I don't need. So, possessions are temporary. Do we love them? No. Can we enjoy them? Read my lips, everybody. Can we enjoy them? Yep. The Bible says that he's given us richly all things to what? Enjoy. So enjoy it, but don't own it. And don't let them own you. Just manage it, celebrate it, use it for God's glory, but hold it lightly. Deep lesson number one, I must stop comparing myself with others. So is there someone in your life that you have a little bit of envy, a little bit of jealousy? You want what they have. And that's another whole concept of teaching. But stop comparing yourself, and I'm going to do that with others. All right, number two, I need to learn to adapt to change. Now, this is another principle, four lessons that he said I learned. He also learned to adapt to change. Now, let's go over this passage. He says this, I know how to be abased. That basically means to live with humble means. And he says, and I know how to abound. That means I know how to live in prosperity. He says, everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. All right, we talked about learning. So he learned a couple of things here. I like that. Abound and abase. Have a lot, have a little. Full, hungry, suffer need, have all that I need. All right, so he looked at that and he said, I learned that. All right change i don't know here on the island and some of you have to help me i know that occasionally they have I, I, it's a festival or it's a carnival or it's a state fair don't they have on the island here where they bring in these rides that you pay so much money you get an armband and you could ride these whiplash things how many know what i'm talking about have you ever been do i, I don't know this and i'm not trying to be f- stupid i've been on these but just haven't been here at the island yet and by the way i like the scarier rides I do. I, I, you know, that's my personality. You know, this scare the mud out of me. I like that, alright? But do they have what is known as a Ferris wheel? It's named after an inventor of this thing that's real round and you kind of sit in this and it goes all the way to the top. You go. Do they have Ferris wheels on the island? Okay. Now I know they're building this one over in Asia that's supposed to be like 60 stories high. I'd love to go there. And I'd like to see if I could get Carol on this thing. Alright? But now, stay with me because this is a great illustration because learning to be content means that you have to adapt to change. Now, most people get very, very excited when they're at the top of this Ferris wheel because they can see everything and the wind is blowing and they're looking at all the little ants, I mean people walking around down below, going on all the other rides. You that have been on a Ferris wheel know what I'm talking about. Frankly, my personality style is not that I'm most excited when I'm on the top of the Ferris wheel. I don't know what kind of grooming I had as a, as a child growing up from my parents, But I got excited when I got in it and I'm now at the bottom and now they're snapping that bar (laughs) because I know in a few moments, they're going to kind of move me up and load up another person and up a little. So what I'm doing is I know that pretty soon I'm going up. I'm going to get, I'm going to see more and more. It's going to get gooder and gooder, more better as I get to the top. All right. I'm excited. Now, I'm not really excited at the top because I know in just a few moments they're going to load some more passengers on the bottom. And so now it's going to start going down, down, down. I'm at the bottom on this thing. Now, why am I using that illustration? It is called a cycle. It's a cycle of a Ferris wheel. It's a cycle of a ride. It's a cycle of excitement, enjoyment. But there's also a cycle in God providing for us. There is a time that you will be a base. There'll be a time that you won't have a lot. Often it's with college kids that are trying to get their money together and they're in and out of school. Then you're going to have a time where you'll have some prosperity. But let me assure you, since life is a cycle, there will come a time that God will move that Ferris wheel of finances or resources in your life that it will go in one way or the other way. So what you have to do is not say, okay, I'm going to the top of this thing. I'm going to climb this Ferris wheel to get up there as fast as I can so I can get the best view. I'm king of the mountain, and I will never go back down. It won't happen because you don't control the Ferris wheel. Did you hear that? We don't control the Ferris wheel. Now, I can control coming down faster. I can jump out. That's not what God wants me to do. I've got to trust the one that's doing this. So with that in mind, what you now might want to do is to look at what we call the cycle. And I hope you see it in a way that one cycle step builds upon another step and the cycle will continue to repeat itself. So the cycle can look like this. The operative word is can. It doesn't mean that it will look like this, but it can look like this. Number one, riches. Somewhere along the line, you will be given some riches. And you young people that's saying, well, I'm not as rich as my mom and dad, but you might have an auntie or an uncle or a cousin that's going to give you some money. So you're going to have a little bit more money, a little bit more riches at the end of the holidays. And you will be four because you're going to kind of get some money. Maybe when you get ready to graduate, maybe your birthday maybe something special you young people are going to get some riches it's going to still fit your cycle, Now that's all going to be relative, some more, some less, but we're all going to go through stages of riches. Look in Deuteronomy 8.18. It says, For it is he, referring to the Lord, who gives you power to get wealth. Now, wealth is relative, so let's just say this. Wealth is having more than what you have now. It could be one penny. You're more wealthy with the one penny than you had without the penny. Now, if you have one dollar, you're even more wealthy, but you're going to have that. But the operative word is not wealth. Circle the word power. God gives you the ability to get this. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of ways that you're going to get some riches. Remember, it's still good. God who is in control of you getting that extra wealth. Number one, it'll come through an inheritance. Some of you will get some inheritance, sometimes frequently.
0: You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida.